Section zero of Myths of Babylonia and Assyria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Myths of Babylonia and Assyria by Donald Alexander Mackenzie. Chapter zero. Preface. This volume it deals with the myths and legends of Babylonia, Assyria, and, as these reflect the civilization in which they developed, a historical narrative has been provided, beginning with the early Sumerian age and concluding with the periods of the Persian and Grecian empires. Over thirty centuries of human progress are thus passed under review. During this vast interval of time, the cultural influences emanating from the Tigro-Euphrates Valley reached far distant shores along the intersecting avenues of trade and in consequence of the periodic and widespread migrations of peoples who had acquired directly or indirectly the leaving elements of the Mesopotamian civilization. Even at the present day traces survive in Europe of the early cultural impress of the East. Our signs of the zodiac, for instance, as well as the system of measuring time and space by using 60 as a base numerical calculation, are inheritances from ancient Babylonia. As in the Nile Valley, however, it is impossible to trace in Mesopotamia the initiatory stages of prehistoric culture based on the agricultural mode of life. What is generally called the dawn of history is really the beginning of a later age of progress. It is necessary to account for the degree of civilization attained at the earliest period of which we have knowledge by postulating a remoter age of culture of much longer duration than that which separates the dawn from the age in which we now live. Although Sumerian or early Babylonian civilization presents distinctly local features which justify the application of the term indigenous in the broad sense, it is found, like that of Egypt, to be possessed of certain elements which suggest exceedingly remote influences and connections at present obscure. Of special interest in this regard is Professor Budge's mature and well-deliberated conclusion that both Sumerians and early Egyptians derive their primeval gods from the same common but exceedingly ancient source. The prehistoric burial customs of these separate peoples are also remarkably similar, and they resemble closely in turn those of the Neolithic Europeans. The cumulative effect of such evidence forces us to regard as not wholly satisfactory and conclusive the hypothesis of cultural influence. A remote racial connection is possible, and is certainly worthy of consideration when so high an authority as Professor Frazier, author of The Golden Bough, is found prepared to admit that the widespread homogeneity of beliefs may have been due to homogeneity of race. It is shown, chapter 1, that certain ethnologists have accumulated data which establish a racial kinship between the Neolithic Europeans and the Proto-Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Southern Persians and the Aero-Indians. Throughout this volume, comparative notes have been compiled in dealing with Mesopotamian beliefs, which propose to assist the reader towards the study of linking myths and legends. Interesting parallels have been gleaned from various religious literatures in Europe, Egypt, India and elsewhere. 
it will be found that certain relics of Babylonian intellectual life, which have a distinctive geographical significance, were shared by people in other cultural areas where they similarly overlaid the local colour. Modes of thought were the products of modes of life and were influenced in their development by human experiences. The influence of environment on the growth of culture has long been recognised, but consideration must also be given to the choice of environment by peoples who had adopted the distinctive habits of life. Racial units migrated from cultural areas to districts suitable for colonisation, and carried with them a heritage of immemorial beliefs and customs, which were regarded as being quite as indispensable for their welfare as their implements and domesticated animals. When consideration is given in this connection to conservative elements in primitive religion, it is not surprising to find that the growth of religious myths was not so spontaneous in early civilizations of the highest order as has hitherto been assumed. It seems clear that in each great local mythology we have to deal in the first place not with symbolized ideas so much as symbolized folk beliefs of remote antiquity to a certain degree of common inheritance. It may not be found possible to arrive at a conclusive solution of the most widespread and therefore the most ancient folk myths, such as, for instance, the dragon myth or the myth of the culture hero. Nor perhaps is it necessary that we should concern ourselves greatly regarding the origin of the idea of the dragon, which in one country symbolized fiery drought and in another overwhelming river floods. The student will find footing on sure ground by following the process which exalts the dragon of the folk tale into the symbol of evil and primordial chaos. The Babylonian creation myth, for instance, can be shown to be localized and glorified legend in which the hero and his tribe are displaced by the war god and his fellow deities whose welfare depends on his prowess. Merodach kills the dragon Tiamat as the heroes of Eurasian folk stories kill grisly hags by casting his weapon down her throat. He severed her inward parts, he pierced her heart, he overcame her and cut off her life. He cast down her body and stood upon it, and with merciless club he smashed her skull. He cut through the channels of her blood, and he made the north wind to bear it away into secret places. Afterwards, he divided the flesh of the Kupau and devised a cunning plan. Mr. L. W. King, from whose scholarly Seven Tablets of Creation, these lines were quoted that Kupau is a word of uncertain meaning. Jensen suggests trunk or body. Apparently, Merodach obtained special knowledge after dividing and perhaps eating the Kupau. His cunning plan is set forth in detail. He cut up the dragon's body. He split her up like a flat fish into two halves. He formed the heavens with one half and the earth with the other, and then set the universe in order. His power and wisdom as the Demiurge were derived from the fierce and powerful great mother, Tiamat. In other dragon stories, the heroes devised the plans after eating the dragon's heart. According to Philostratus, Apollonius of Tyrena was worthy of being remembered for two things. His bravery in travelling among fierce robber tribes, not then subject to Rome, 
and his wisdom in learning the language of the birds and other animals, as the Arabs do. This accomplishment the Arabs acquired, Philostratus explains by eating the hearts of dragons. The animals who utter magic words are, of course, the fates. Siegfried of the Nibel und Genleid, after slaying the rain dragon, makes himself invulnerable by bathing in its blood. He obtains wisdom by eating the heart. As soon as he tastes it, he can understand the language of the birds, and the birds reveal to him that Mima is waiting to slay him. Sigurd similarly makes his plans after eating the heart of the Fafner dragon. In Scottish legend, Finn MacCoel obtains the power to divine secrets by partaking of a small portion of the seven salmon associated with the well dragon. And Michael Scott and other folk heroes become great physicians after tasting the juices of the middle part of the body of the white snake. The hero of an Egyptian folk tale slays a deathless snake by cutting it into two parts and putting sand between the parts. He then obtains from the box, of which it is the guardian, the book of spells. When he reads a page of the spells, he knows what the birds of the sky, the fish of the deep, and the beasts of the hill say. The book gives him power to enchant the heaven and the earth, the abyss, the mountains, and the sea. Magic and religion were never separated in Babylonia. Not only the priests, but the gods performed magical ceremonies. Ea, Merodach's father, overcame Absu, the husband of the dragon Tiamat, by means of spells. He was the great magician of the gods. Merodach's division of the Kupau was evidently an act of contagious magic. By eating or otherwise disposing of the vital part of the fierce and wise mother dragon, he became endowed with her attributes, and was able to proceed with the work of creation. Primitive peoples in our own day, like the Apifinos of Paraguay, eat the flesh of fierce and cunning animals, so that their strength, courage, and wisdom may be increased. Direct influence exercised by cultural contact, on the other hand, may be traced when myths of an alien geographical setting are found among peoples whose experiences could never have given them origin. In India, where the dragon symbolizes drought and the western river deities are female, the Manu fish and flood legend resembles closely the Babylonian, and seems to throw light upon it. Indeed, the Manu myth appears to have been derived from the lost flood story in which Ea figured prominently in fish form as the preserver. The Babylonian Ea cult and the Indian Varuna cult had apparently much in common, as is shown. Throughout this volume, special attention has been paid to the various peoples who were in immediate contact with and influenced by Mesopotamian civilization. Histories are traced in outline of the kingdoms of Elam, Uatu, ancient Armenia, Mitanni, and the Hittites, while the story of the rise and decline of the Hebrew civilization, as narrated in the Bible and referred to in Mesopotamian inscriptions, is related from the earliest times until the captivity of the Neo-Babylonian period and the restoration during the age of the Persian Empire. The struggles waged between the great powers for the control of trade routes and the periodic migrations of pastoral warrior folks who determine the fate of empires 
are also dealt with so that light may be thrown on the various processes and influences associated with the development of local religions and mythologies. Special chapters with comparative notes are devoted to the Ishtar Tammuz myths, the Semiramis legends, Ashur and his symbols, and the origin and growth of astrology and astronomy. The ethnic disturbances which occurred at various well-defined periods in the Tigro-Euphrates Valley were not always favourable to the advancement of knowledge and growth of the culture. The invaders who absorbed Sumerian civilization may have secured more settled conditions by welding together political units, but seem to have exercised a retrogressive influence on the growth of local culture. Babylonian religion, writes Dr. Langdon, appears to have been in its highest level in the Sumerian period, or at least not later than 2000 BC. From that period onward to the 1st century BC, popular religion maintained, with great difficulty, the sacred standards of the past. Although it has been customary to characterize Mesopotamian civilization as Semitic, modern research tends to show that the indigenous inhabitants, who were non-Semitic, were its originators. Like the Proto-Egyptians, the early Cretans and the Pelagians in southern Europe and Asia Minor, they invariably achieved the intellectual conquest of their conquerors, as in the earliest times they had won victories over the antagonistic forces of nature. If the modern view is accepted that these ancient agriculturists of the goddess cult were of common racial origin, it is the most representative communities of the widespread Mediterranean race that the credit belongs of laying the foundations of the brilliant civilizations of the ancient world in southern Europe, Egypt and the valley of Tigris and Euphrates. End of chapter zero. Recording by Adam Tompkins.